Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, the climate activist Sarah Bueller will talk about Biden's climate policy, notably his cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. And then Chris Maizano will review the main contributions of the great political scientist Leo Panitch, who died last month. This is a jam-packed show, so I won't say much about the GameStop circus. I wrote up my thoughts in a piece for Jacobin, so if you're interested, I suggest you check it out. For now, I'll only say, forget all those propagandists who say the stock market serves an important role in allocating capital for investment. It doesn't. Over the last 20 years, U.S. companies have raised about $650 billion by floating stock, less than 2% of real investment in things like buildings and machines. Over the same period, firms distributed over $8 trillion, 13 times as much, to their shareholders by buying up their own stock in an effort to boost its price. The stock market is a giant machine for value extraction by the very rich. And while there's no denying the schadenfreude of value of a gang of disreputable Redditors relieving some hedge fund honchos of their shirts, their hijinks are not going to bring down the system, as some of the more heated commentators have been fantasizing about. For more from me, visit jacobinmag.com. I didn't expect much from Joe Biden, but so far he's exceeding expectations, especially on climate. Yes, there will be too many concessions to Wall Street and corporate power, but on the other hand, his executive orders are much stronger than I would have predicted, and his elevation of climate to such an important role is not standard centrist democratic fare. Yet to be seen is how he handles the politically dicey issue of fracking, which is controversial in some electorally crucial states like Pennsylvania. But canceling the Keystone Pipeline, while not entirely surprising, is still very encouraging. Here's the British Columbia-based climate activist Sarah Bueller with background on Keystone and the Alberta tar sands and an analysis of what it all means. Sarah Bueller. Let's start with the tar sands. I suspect a lot of Americans might not exactly know what they are. Um, Where are they? What are they? And uh, why are they so terrifying? The tar sands are in northern Alberta. It's a large amount of uh, what it's called bitumen, which is a peanut buttery-like substance that kind of oozes and they mine it up there. So some of them, they just dig, some they use a lot of fresh water to boil off the, the sand and then they export it. So it's, um, it's a heavy crude. It's similar to Mexican Maya crude and it's similar to a lot of what Venezuela puts out, heavy oil. And the issue of course with the tar sands is that getting that product to places like the Gulf or the Pacific or you know out into the world economy mean pipelines and diluted bitumen is different than crude oil it sinks uh, and it can't be cleaned up so in, in Kalamazoo in Michigan when they had a big spill there years and years and years of effort still uh, haven't concluded with a you know a pristine environment so the, the danger from all these pipelines is that they're building more of them and they transfer this gunk so it's directly risking uh, the territories and lands of uh, where they go through. But the other thing, of course, is that like James Hansen, uh, the climate scientist said, you know, exploiting all of Alberta's tar sands would be game over for the climate. So it's dirtier, you have to refine it before it's usable. And so it, you know, it uh, gathers less on the world market. So Albertans and multinational corporations in Alberta, like Suncor, Snovis, I've been spending a lot of money to build these pipelines because volume is really the only thing that is profitable. So like we've seen in the shale crisis, this sort of like endless cycle of expansion, catching up to credit is faltering. So last year, the demand, you know, first of all, we had a trade war, essentially between Saudi Arabia and Russia, with glut of fossil fuels on the market. And there was already a huge drop in price. And then the pandemic slammed into it and demand cratered. So nothing's really come back from that yet. Uh, The problem is, though, is that all these economic analyses that governments use to justify pipeline infrastructure are based on pre-pandemic and in some cases pre-oil crash in 2014. Uh, It needs a fairly high oil price to be economical, right? Exactly. Yeah. So line three, it goes from tar sands and through Minnesota and down to uh, the coast. 
Enbridge's KXL goes through the sort of heartlands as well, through a lot of Midwestern states. Trans Mountain goes from, say, Edmonton area, just northern Alberta, down to the coastal city of Vancouver. And, you know, we've been playing sort of whack-a-mole with these pipelines because as much as local governments all, and, you know, and oil and gas executives, of course, deny that building new infrastructure allows room for mining expansion, it does. If you build it, they will come, essentially. And so a lot of these uh, fights are joining together because we're realizing, you know, you can't just keep, as we say, keep playing whack-a-mole with pipelines. It's filthy to mine, it's fil- filthy to transport, and then fatal for the climate. So it's it's a triple threat. It is. And the one of the things that's just like, you know, it ticks people off all the time. It's like even what we're not achieving, which is like the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, net zero by 2050, like those kind of goals, we're not anywhere near them, but we're still dragging our feet in terms of, I don't know, expanding. It's just, it, it boggles the mind sometimes. It's, it's so irrational. And yet we're fighting this like every single day. There's been extensive activism on both sides of the border around these pipelines. Could you describe some of the scope of that? Absolutely. Uh, Right now, it's sort of popping off is line three. So Enbridge is building this tar sands pipeline through the traditional territory, the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe people, through uh, traditional wild rice patties that are unique in the world. So activism around it has been ongoing, but the real sort of accelerant was the Trump administration, which kept pressuring and giving out these permits. For instance, Dakota Access, which is what the Standing Rock sued in 2016 and what we were all motivated against, has had this permit issued that has been declared, I believe, invalid or illegal. So it, it is now possible for Biden to just with a stroke of the pen cancel its permits, just like he did with Keystone. So there's been Indigenous-led groups. Um, The climate movement has coalesced around the Line 3 fight. Um, There's people on the front lines like Winona LaDuke of Honor the Earth and Tara Huska of Ginu Collective, um, who is a tribal attorney and worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign as a policy advisor. So they're down there right now by the Mississippi in their sacred uh, spaces on their territory while bulldozers are, are taking down the forest. So a lot of us are... Um, activated around that. Um, and then, of course, Dapple, which has this sort of massive movement energy around it. Um, as far as Trans Mountain, sorry, which is Canada, <laughs> I shouldn't forget about that. The Trudeau government actually bought that one in 2018. And because of the pandemic, construction has slowed, costs are ballooning, construction is delayed, but Trudeau will not give up on it. And it's it's, uh, it's kind of frustrating, but you know. I think a lot of Americans don't really get that the Liberal Party, Trudeau's party, is kind of the natural Canadian party of business, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of Canada, they look upon themselves as the natural caretakers. You know, you get your conservatives in once in a while, but they're the money on Bay Street. They're the investors. They're the ones who sell the resources. But Trudeau's put himself in a funny position because he is traditionally liberal and he is, you know, they are very wide, but they don't have any votes in Alberta. So Alberta is where the tar sands are. Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Prairie Provinces is where a lot of this real reactionary conservatism is. And there's not one vote for the liberals, maybe one in Alberta, like a seat, say, in the House of Commons. So the oil and gas lobby, I think it's just it reveals how closely intertwined the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, and I mean the Conservative Party and, and the opposition are all really entwined, more so, I think, than the U.S. in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, in the U.S., the oil and gas industry is leads pretty Republican, um, which is one of the reasons that Biden can take some of these measures he's taken. It is. And it it makes me it gives me some hope, too. I've been kind of frantically trying to process all moves Biden's been making on climate in the last week. And it does seem to me that, like, maybe as a climate movement, we've done our job convincing people that there's an emergency. Like, you cannot keep just going to the Hamptons and ignoring all of this. Your kids are going to have to deal with it. So, uh, you know, a very slight kind of common we share a, a biome, perhaps awareness is penetrating, but the issue then, of course, becomes justice, climate justice. Who pays the price for this sort of thing? Where new infrastructure is located? Who has the power to decide that? And of course, the big players are trying to hold that grip and maintain it, like JP Morgan Chase. Um, you know, BP and Shell have made some interesting moves lately, but uh, they're all still 
not going at the pace that we need. And you're active on the finance side of it. What's what's that uh, angle? Yes, it's a fairly recent iteration in the climate movement. So the idea was, you know, there's a few avenues you can stop projects or try to change policy. So you've got like the courts, of course, which are, you know, long and tedious and often rule against you. There's government, which change often and have the ears of the oil and gas company. So a group of folks started looking at who exactly was financing the most uh, fossil fuel and BlackRock, uh, of course, jumps to mind. So this year, I think they just recently updated, BlackRock has around $9 trillion of assets under management. So they are, of course, they're the world's largest investor in everything, basically, but they're the world's largest investor in fossil fuels. So the idea was, if we go straight to the source of the financing, we can stop the flow of financing to new projects that are expanding in a way like institutional inertia is probably what we're going to have to deal with next. Like you can make your big changes, but you have they have to filter through every institution and every department and every outlook. It's interesting though, because the Trump administration at this point has basically have co-branded themselves with the fossil fuel companies. So my personal hope is that we're gonna have this really lovely like rear view for that. And so far as uh, he's out of the political office, but the oil and gas, people who really bet heavily on him are are losing heavily. And that I think is good for the future because the fact is we have like a majority of people who are aware of the climate problem, want climate action, but we have this sort of ossified layer of managerial and electeds uh, who just continue on their zombie path of profit at all costs. And what's Biden done so far and what do you make of it? Well, the big one, of course, was canceling Keystone. Um, which set off a, you know, a thunderstorm around the world, although it probably shouldn't have. And they've been very clear, I think, that Keystone was going to be canceled. Obama canceled it in 2015 after massive, enormous pressure. There were arrest parades around the White House for two weeks, five people deep. He's canceled. So Trump, I can't remember when it was, but they opened up public lands to oil and gas exploration. So on the first day, the Biden administration stopped that and, and I believe they tossed it to Interior. Uh, to do a longer analysis. But what we're hearing is that tomorrow, when there's going to be another raft of climate pronouncements, we are probably going to hear a longer moratorium, if not an outright cancellation of public oil and gas uh, exploitation on public land, excuse me, as well as like quite a lot, enough that we got lost last week trying to keep up with it all. So I think they want to do like vehicle standards and building standards and different investments. Um, and a lot of that is great. Um, that's what they can do administratively. What they do regulation-wise is going to be, of course, interesting with this Senate. But yeah, you know, for me, it's like I think Biden's got religion or or more to the point, perhaps he's surrounded by advisors who have made this a priority. Maybe that's it. I'm speaking with a climate activist, Sarah Bueller. Well, it's a bit of a surprise. I must say, and I didn't expect much out of him. I, I voted for him. I you know, hated Trump so much, but I didn't expect all that much. And I've been very pleasantly surprised by some of these moves so far. I guess it has a lot to do with all the activism that's gone on. I think so. Um, I, I should say, I should mention, too, that because a lot of you know the climate movement is also like a social justice movement in general. So we had people in both spaces, like in the climate finance movement and in uh, D.C., for example, who were organizing to stop the stop the steal, if you will, uh, starting last summer. You know, it was obvious Trump was saying it. I'm not going to just, you know, if I don't get elected, it's not a fair fight. So they were prepped and they've been prepped since, you know, his inauguration. They also kept a lot of people out. So for some reason, it's translating through. It's funny. Uh, maybe it's being in uh, <laughs> these kind of spaces for so long. But when politicians start listening to you, it's shocking and actually sobering. Right. There, there must be something wrong here. I don't know what's going well, on. Well, if it's bad enough that capital, that J, like J.P. Morgan Chase and BlackRock and Liberty Mutual are all making moves on climate. So like the finance uh, climate movement has successfully tied their reputation to their actions on climate, which was frankly scoffed at even three years ago. And people say, we want to get them to do this. It's a joke. Banks are a monolith. Nobody will listen to you. But before you know, the pandemic started, we were on the verge of the biggest uh, climate demonstrations probably the world has ever seen. Unfortunately, you know, we couldn't take the streets. But the fact is, is that you know, you're not walking into a room of under 30s anymore and pretending climate change doesn't exist. 
it's a settled question, you know. And how have these moves been uh, received in Canada? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, in Canada, um, it's interesting, as you say, you know, Trudeau is still trying to walk this very strange line of I can build new tar sands pipelines while making the case for climate action like a carbon tax, again, new EV regulations, building retrofits, like the same suite of policies. But I mean, you can't talk about Canada without talking about Alberta, which unfortunately brings up, you know, mini Trump of the North, who's uh, Jason Kenney, who's extremely right wing. He, brought, he started his career, I believe, working as an anti-abortion uh, activist in San Francisco with a very fundamentalist Catholic uh, outfit. Now, Alberta has a long tradition of these characters, right? This is our Texas, we usually say, like backwoods Texas, not, you know, no, no shade to, to uh, Austin or anything. Uh, but, you know, if you want like to sort of guns and oil, that's that's where you are. And they really stake their reputation on it. And it's funny because that Alberta outlook, that oil and gas above all, you know, the raft climate denial has melded with that right wing reactionary strain coming from the states. So the Trumpism seems to be kind of bundled with oil and gas. It's a very uh, snug fit. So Jason Kenney has basically had a temper tantrum. Um, he's the premier of Alberta. He wants the, the prime minister of Canada to start a trade war. Uh, he says canceling KXL. No one ever could have uh, predicted. I mean, these guys, you've got to start wondering at some point, do they believe what they're saying? Because nobody could have not predicted it. We all knew it was going to happen. Just the same way that Trump, you know, erased every smidge of Obama in the White House. Like Biden's first day was mostly reversing Trump's executive orders, reversing Obama policies. <laughs> and Keystone was that like major thing. But I think cooler heads are prevailing. Um, former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., spoke out last week and said, look, when Stephen Harper, who was the previous prime minister to Trudeau, another right wing, now on with uh, very fun, you know, right wing groups in the States, dominionists, like pretty fundamental Christian stuff. You do have some of that right wing Christian stuff going on up there, right? Well, the thing is, the border is porous on that stuff. Like when you get focus in the family in Colorado, they come up here and give workshops Stephen Harper would go down and advise some of these like ultra right wing groups uh, because much like getting copyable legislation like ALEC, for instance, that kind of push to try and just like uh, extend that worldview. I believe it is called the dominionist. It's like in the, the Christian worldview that you have dominion over planet and everything rather than stewardship of, which is a different approach. Uh, but the Canadian ambassador to the U.S. said, Harper ruined his relationship with the Obama White House because they wouldn't stop bringing up Keystone. And at some point, they just stopped taking Harper's calls. So there isn't an awareness here that we don't want to go down that route, which is, again, another demonstration of how important, unfortunately, the American empire is in terms of setting the agenda globally. And so for Biden to be making these really big moves bodes well. My first question was about the initial ruling class reaction to these moves. But what's it done to activists in Canada? A jolt of uh, excitement? Yeah, well, I think it just, you know, it is funny as an activist, you spend so much of your life with the, saying the emperor has no clothes. And then it, it's, a to, it's a mystery when the crowd gets it, you know. So some excitement knowing also that the cognitive dissonance you need to keep, like we've given the Trudeau government a good four opportunities to back out of Trans Mountain. Kinder Morgan left because we resisted. In fact, I work with an indigenous organization and Grand Chief Stuart Phillip went down to the construction site and was ready to be arrested. And the next day, Kinder Morgan said, we're done, we're out of here. Either we're gonna sell this or we're gonna cancel it, okay? All Trudeau had to do was nothing. Instead, they got taken to the cleaners by Kinder Morgan, shelled out around $5 billion for the existing infrastructure, uh, and Kinder Morgan got out of Canada. No problem. But then what happens is the portion, Kinder Morgan Canada, was basically just lifted up and plopped into the Canadian government, where it now exists as a crown corporation. So we don't really have any levers besides direct action. Uh, we've exhausted legal appeals. There's no other funder. So like climate finance is very useful, but only when you have banks funding it. Canadian government is funding Trans Mountain itself. But line three, for example, is being supported by City, Bank of America, I think, and 16 other groups. 
And so we at Stop the Money Pipeline will be launching an attack, uh, verbal and uh, <laughs> targeted activism at them to stop funding fossil fuels. They, they, it, we need to go through every single bank and target them until they acknowledge that we're in a climate emergency and they're making it worse. Now, do you get the feeling that people are really finally coming to consciousness? You know, it's funny because for like three years up here anyway, and I think in the States, climate change has been polling pretty high as people being aware of it. It's funny, we, we thought the pandemic might drown it out for a bit, but it seems, I think, especially in the under 30s, that the idea that our safe-ish slash predictable, you know, and depending on your class position, of course, uh, course of society can just be casually smashed, uh, makes people maybe a little keenly aware that well, it is hotter this year. Or like, um, you know, I just read this great article by this guy talking about how he can function at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but at 110 degrees, he can't. He had to stop hiking and, and heat exhaustion took over, you know? And I think the fires in California and just the general sense of doom, I think, uh, it seems like it's all just kind of married into this, we need an immediate system change and the pandemic is forcing it. Those of us in the radical left have always thought that capitalism can't manage this. Um, and one is skeptical, but on the other hand, <laughs> the problem is much more urgent than the revolution seems imminent. So I guess this is Definitely. what we've got to deal with, right? Well, and that's where we, you know, not to, uh, we have our transitional demands, so to speak. Like, if we can generate the power to force or persuade enormous capital with a large C to stop funding fossil fuels, I think at that point, the power of those movements demand, like, that'll be a different world. However, I just, you know, it's been driving me nuts today in the last couple of days. I don't understand, except by cognitive dissonance, why, how people can say capitalism, you know, will provide essentially the free hand of the market when it's been a year and there is still no reusable, effective mask that we can all just use. Everybody's still sewing masks, you're throwing medical grade masks, like, you know what I mean? If capitalism could do it, it would have stepped up already. It's a ludicrous proposition that they can handle the multiple, uh, like we need so much transformation to deal with climate. But so, you know, step by step, and we'll see it as the pathway becomes clear, uh, maybe that will just be the locus of the fight, you know? That was the British Columbia-based climate activist, Sarah Bueller. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Oh, who's yelling now? Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross talk in the flock, trying to fight mid-flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hands to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it. Fifth and life for president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass I heard block. she called the house in Christ. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries. The first female secretary of the treasury. Don't want no tax evasion for just taking in the treasury. Trying for higher wages for the nation. Let's there's busted glass Janet broke another ceiling You can bet your brass That the Lego guy is leaving Let's check to cash Excuse me, Janet has a briefing And a flight to catch And Janet, Janet. She's the first that's led The Council of Economic Advisors Treasuring the Fed She needs a three-sided coin That always comes up heads To put the triple crown down When she goes to bed How some of Who's Yelling Now An amusing song by Dessa A member of the hip-hop collective Doomtree Next, an overview of the work of Leo Panitch The great Marxist political scientist Who died on December 19th Leo is a friend of mine in my family, so I took the loss personally, but his death is also a loss to the world of left-wing politics. Here's Chris Maizano, a contributing editor at Jacobin, who wrote an excellent review of Leo's work over the decades for the magazine. Chris Maizano. Did you know um, Leo at all personally? I did. I didn't know Leo as well as some of his students at York or his like closest uh, co-thinkers and collaborators from over the years. But but I did know Leo personally. He, whenever he would come to New York for a conference or whatever the case may be, uh, try to meet up with him. I would see him at conferences and things like that in Montreal and, uh, and some other places. So that that allowed me to get to know him a little bit. Uh, you know, to talk to him in person about uh, many of the things that I'd. Um, read of his and just to get him get to know him not just as a as a thinker and a 
and an academic, but as a, as a human being. Yeah, I mean, the reason I asked is that I just wanted to start by saying he was a fantastic human being. You know, so many people of his uh, stature are, are assholes, but he was the furthest thing from one. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it seems cliche to say it, uh, but, you know, he was somebody that you, you could have a beer with, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's somebody. I had quite can, a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. So he was somebody that you can just as easily talk to about uh, the basketball game from last night as you could about uh, the state of, uh, you know, imperialism today. Yeah, our kid who uh, despises politics, I was like Leo, because they could talk sports. Yes, just uh, a really rare person who, you know, I feel I felt uh, every time he came into contact with could bridge many different worlds and somebody who even despite the fact that he was such a towering intellectual and political figure was just a, a normal person, for lack of a better word, that you could uh, just uh, share some time with, get to know and talk about just about anything. OK, but let's talk about his contribution. Uh, you open the piece by pointing out that Marxism uh, has not always uh, had much to say about the political. And I find as I'm writing my piece, for my very belated piece for Jacobin on the ruling class, that uh, there's just not much Marxist thinking about the ruling class. I once asked Bertel Ullman about that. And he says, well, he said there is none. And I, he, I asked him why. He said they think it's obvious. There's a way in which you can use some kind of economic determinism to uh, uh, replace any kind of thinking about politics, parties, or the state, right? For sure. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, I think that line from from Ullman is is uh, pretty spot on in terms of I think one reason one major reason why the situation exists uh, and why there really is quite little I think in the way of really rigorous and systematic theorizing and um, concept building about uh, these various uh, problems and issues. When I was doing my reading for this piece, I thought it would be good to revisit some of um, Ralph Miliband's writings on this subject um, for a lot of reasons. You know, one of them being the fact that Leo's own work as as a student of Ralph Miliband was so rooted in his in his contributions and his thought in his introduction to the book Marxism and Politics Miliband uh, gives his kind of take on why this situation exists and you know I found it to be pretty persuasive and his explanation is somewhat paradoxical and it and it, and it kind of recalls that line from from Ullman that you just uh, related which is that you know it's kind of the very pervasiveness of conflict and therefore of politics in one form or another in Marxist thought has tended to drain the formal political sphere, that world of the state, of government, of government agencies, of political parties, both of their specificity and, and their autonomy from other areas of social life, whether that's the economy. Yeah, it's that kind of that paradox of, you know, seeing politics and conflict everywhere leading to the situation where either you feel like it's you don't need to say anything about it because it's so obvious or because certain strands or variations of Marxism, the recourse to, to economic uh, explanations tends to crowd out uh, reference specifically to what might be happening in politics and what might be happening due to the conscious intervention or activity or planning of actual human beings uh, you spent some time in your piece uh, writing about Leo's analysis of uh, the notion that changes in the working class, changes in the objective changes in the economy have uh, really been responsible for uh, the weakening of socialist politics. There was the, the New Times crowd in, in England um, who uh, you know, argued uh, that the working class doesn't really exist anymore, at least in the sense that we understood it. Yeah, could you talk about that line of argument and what Leo's critique of it was? Leo, unlike figures in you know, what you might call the post-Marxist sort of crowd, who rejected this idea that there is something objective or structural uh, about class, he didn't go down that kind of path. But he did think that we should, people on the left, socialists, Marxists, radicals, should avoid what he called sociological reductionism. Uh, and this was a, a, a concept that he used in many places, I think most effectively and most uh, specifically in his um, long and very good essay criticizing the likes of Eric Hobsbawm, were making the type of argument that you had just laid out there, that it was this change in the nature of economic life. It was this change in the occupational structure of advanced capitalist countries like, say, Britain or the various other countries in Western Europe or North America that in, in itself accounts for or explains the crisis in working class and socialist and left-wing politics that really started to become very apparent you know, by the 70s and certainly by the by the 80s. And of course, the, the victory of Thatcher was really shocking to a lot of people and really made everyone rethink everything. 
Yes, absolutely. First, the victory of Thatcher and then the victory of, um, of Reagan in the U.S. pointed to some very real and serious problems uh, that the left at the time didn't really have any strong answers for and which required, to a significant extent, some rethinking. So people like Hobsbawm or, say, Stuart Hall or, or other thinkers in that um, school, you could say, we're certainly not wrong to try to figure out what the hell was going on because, yeah, it was clear that the left had kind of, and the working class movement was in crisis, had kind of hit a wall. His argument, though, was that you couldn't necessarily look to, say, the shifts from industry to service or from production to consumption or the numerical decline of um, the older industrial working class itself. This in and of itself doesn't just account for the crisis of working class politics. It plays a role, but to a significant extent, you also had to look to the, the practice of working class, uh, left-wing, social democratic, labor, and, and communist parties and movements for why they found themselves in the situation that they were in by, by that time. That's the basic point that he tried to make in that particular piece, uh, which is called The Impasse of Social Democratic Politics. And then in much of his other work on these questions of the crisis of the working class movement, why it got itself into that position and what, if anything, might be done to, to pull it back out. Now, this leads us uh, to uh, another important point. Uh, and I'm looking at this from the point of view of uh, the ruling class uh, recently, but uh, it's very important, too, for uh, working class politics, that parties organize classes. We, we, have, we have this kind of mechanistic view of politics, or some people have this mechanistic view of politics, that parties just sort of reflect developments from below. But in fact, the parties really do a lot to shape understanding and practice and consciousness, right? Yes, precisely. This was a big part of Leo's work on working class politics and the role of political parties in particular in working class politics. And in that, you know, he was very much uh, rooted in and drawing upon and building on a lot of the work of the great uh, British Marxist and left wing historians of the middle part of the 20th century, particularly people like E.P. Thompson, who wrote the, the monumental book, The Making of the English Working Class. And, uh, you know, in a very uh, celebrated and well-known preface, his preface to that book, Thompson makes this argument that um, basically class is not so much a, a thing or an object, uh, but a process, a set of re relationships. Uh, it's worth re reading that whole, that whole thing because it's, it's very thought-provoking. It's very rich. I think he takes certain arguments uh, a little bit too far in, in kind of a subjective uh, sort of sense. I think he overstates the extent to which class is not, say, sociological, for example. But uh, it's, a, it's a great point and, and really one that I think often um, goes overlooked. Leo was really trying to build upon that, that core insight, both to explain the decline of working class politics, you know, to really analyze the ways in which, in his work, the British Labour Party in particular, contributed to its own state uh, of decline and defeat by the 70s and 80s. Uh, but then also what the working class movement that was still around, was kind of on the decline, experiencing defeats, but still around and kicking, what it might be able to do at the level of politics, at the level of party organization, at the level of ideology and culture, to get itself out of the crisis that it had found itself in, to grapple effectively with the new kind of economic and social situation that uh, the working class movement was in by the, by the 80s, certainly, and definitely by the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. And to uh, kind of refound itself and not just expect the way that, say, many Democratic Party strategists do, like demographics, to save them, but to really do the work at the level of party building, of ideology and culture, countercultural production that could have a working class movement ma manufacture or re rebuild its, its own base rather than hope that um, it would cohere on its own. And that you would just sort of glom onto it and ride it into uh, into office or into power. In its heyday, uh, the U.S. Communist Party had at least some degree of internal education, cultural activities. Uh, they did a lot to be just much more than uh, some kind of bureaucratic machine. That's part of what Leo was talking about. Yes, precisely. Um, you know, the the CP uh, definitely is one one example of that. Um, if you read either histories of the, of the CP or, you know, people's memoirs, memoirs of uh, former or, or lifelong members of the party. That's one of the things that really jumps out at you. The extremely intensive internal educational and intellectual life of the party. 
the CP is just one example. You know, if you go back uh, into American history, you can find many, many uh, different examples of this in addition to, to the CP. You know, the old Socialist Party is certainly one of them. They had a huge array of newspapers, of publishing uh, outlets, camp meetings, big rallies, uh, schools that did education for party members and, uh, you know, people in their orbit. The populist movement as well. If I'm not mistaken, I think either a historian or some participant in the populist movement, you know, the original populist movement of uh, the late 19th century, I think compared it to one giant schoolhouse or something, just basically one giant campaign movement of just popular education among working people. One of the remarkable things about that period, and I have my reservations about the populace, was, but farmers and workers were actually like studying monetary theory. Uh, and some of it was kind of crackpot, but they were really working hard to understand this world. And you hear this line now that people just don't have the time to take politics seriously. Well, I would think your average you know, late 19th century farmer or worker um, didn't have a whole lot of free time either. So, I mean, there's this great deficiency uh, in, in current politics is there's just no institution to encourage that kind of self-education and also the solidarity that comes with it. Absolutely. Uh, totally agree. And not, yeah, not just uh, acquiring the intellectual or educational uh, capacity or knowledge that goes along with it, but, you know, really that collective endeavor of getting together with a group of people who uh, are experiencing the same situation and together, both on the basis of, you know, things you might be reading or, or hearing, somebody speaking to you or lecturing to you, but, you know, combining that with uh, the common experiences that you have in your day-to-day life, it's, it's extremely powerful. Yeah, I think you're right. To a certain extent, that's a kind of a lost tradition that today people are trying to rebuild or recover with, uh, with the growth of a new left here in the United States and in, and in other countries. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to take some time precisely because it went into such eclipse. That's certainly one key aspect of this process uh, that Leo just returned to over and over in his work, this this question of class formation and the role of uh, parties in particular, but not just parties in doing it, whether that's trade unions or other kinds of associations, uh, you know, rooted in or kind of oriented to uh, the working class uh, in the most broad sense. I'm speaking with Jacobin contributing editor Chris Maizano. Now, to return to the British uh, uh, scene for a moment, now, Leo is very critical of the Labour Party, not just you know what happened to it under Blair, but uh, going back to its roots, that it was never really a revolutionary party, never centered the working class in the way that it should have, but instead became a, a party of the national interest. As you point out, uh, a twist of fate that found one of its clearest expressions in Ed Miliband's One Nation Laborism. It's funny to see you know, Ralph's kid having done that, um, but <laughs> that, that's life for you. The Labor Party's uh, problems go way, way, way back in that uh, it was it never really tried for that revolutionary spirit. Yeah, that was certainly a, a key aspect of, of Leo's analysis and, and criticism of the Labor Party, um, as, well as, as well as Ralph Miliband's uh, analysis and criticism of the Labor Party and of social democratic and labor parties in general, it, it should be added. In their view, it wasn't so much the fact that British Labour or any other of the great uh, kind of 20th century left-wing parties you might talk about. The issue wasn't so much that they tried to use parliament or parliamentary action in order to create radical social change, at least as one uh, aspect of a, of, a, of a broader process involving other forms of activity. It wasn't so much the, the decision to enter and try to use parliament that was the issue here. It was, yeah, the issue was precisely what you were talking about. This conception of socialism or uh, of social democracy, not as a, a politics of class struggle and not as a politics that sought to make the, the working class the rulers of, of the nation the same way that uh, capitalists are the ruling class under capitalism, but you know, as a mode of class co- cooperation, of a mode of finally bringing the nation together, overcoming the conflicts that beset it today and yes uh, you know attaining something that uh, you would call say the national interest or the public good or or something like that you could make the argument that there are ways to make the case that there is some kind of public good or national interest or what have you in a way that you know makes it potentially compatible with you know with a, a distinctly working class uh, politics a politics that sought to put the, the, the workers kind of in the saddle uh, but yes, uh, you know, very often in terms of uh, the practice and the ideology of, of British labor or of any of the other um, big uh, and influential left-wing parties and movements of the 20th century, especially those that got either into national power or close to it, this is just a recurrent feature that you see over and over again. 
one of the main implications of that is that those elements within the party or within the movement, and typically you find those on the left of the party or the movement that really want to center politics of class conflict or class struggle, tend to get marginalized, uh, tend to be uh, opposed uh, by the more moderate or conservative elements of, of the movement. Uh, and, you know, it becomes a source of internal strife and, and conflict. It also, uh, and this is something that Leo was very attentive to, at times could put the party into tension with its allied unions. Because as, as flawed, limited, sectional, etc., as, as unions can be, they also are very close to the day, or you know, ideally you would like them to be very close to the day-to-day needs and interests and working pe- of working people. So you know, if you've got a social democratic or labor party in power that are doing things to restrain or work against uh, the kind of very specific class interest of organized workers, you're going to find some opposition there. And it can tend to put uh, the labor organizations, the unions, into conflict with their nominal parties as well. These are various aspects of this issue that um, Leo identified and which, uh, you know, is very recurrent in the history of not just the Labor Party, but of uh, a whole range, a whole array of, of uh, left-wing parties and movements. And of course, if we look at our own Democratic Party, there's just <laughs> nothing at all, even remotely uh, <laughs> close to what's needed here. Yeah. It, it, sometimes as an American reader, you read stuff like this and you're just like, oh, my God, I, I, I wish we had this problem here in the United States. Uh, that would be that would be a step up. It seems like maybe we're starting to get to the point where this is actually becoming a live issue in U.S. politics and in and around the Democratic Party. We'll see. But yes, that's that's certainly right. And uh, as much as he admired Jeremy Corbyn, um, Corbyn had inherited this husk of a labor party. So it's really limited what he could do politically, because there's just not the internal culture, the internal life of the party um, that could uh, provide the kind of propulsion that uh, would really be necessary to lead Corbyn to a transformative uh, success. Yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, he was obviously extremely supportive of, of Corbyn and the, the movement around him, the movement that propelled him very unexpectedly, almost accidentally into the position of um, the Labor Party leadership, which he held for about, what, four years or so under relentless hostility and attack the whole time. The situation there was that out of, um, you know, after a period of decades of defeat, erosion, marginalization, of the left in the Labour Party and of the labor movement in the UK through this kind of quirk of, uh, of, of history, this, this figure who had been just a stalwart of what uh, Leo, uh, in collaboration with his co-author Colin Lees, called the Labour New Left. Somebody who had, like Bernie Sanders, uh, I think to a significant extent, had just kind of stuck around for decades, you know, had just dealt with decades of marginalization, of uh, ridicule even, but in the process had built themselves um, a good amount of credibility and goodwill, particularly among activists, both inside and outside the party, get themselves into a position of leadership, are able to do some very good things and attain some unprecedented uh, levels of electoral success. British Labour did quite well, electorally speaking, under uh, Corbyn, particularly in the first general election when they denied the Tories a majority. But because so much of the party, particularly the Parliamentary Labour Party, remained wedded to a fundamentally different set of politics and to a different kind of political project, it really limited the amount of change that they could see through both within the party itself and uh, what they probably would have been able to see through if they had been able to win a general election and form a, a government. I think there's probably quite a bit that they would have been able to achieve that would have been good. But they would have faced opposition at every step, not just from the Tories, but uh, within the party itself. Uh, and that would have really um, hamstrung Corbyn, hamstrung John McDonnell, and um, made it difficult to, to push the process as far as you, you might like. Because as you say, the huge base that used to exist uh, in support of these sorts of parties decades ago to a significant, it's not gone, but to a significant extent, has really eroded, has been reconstituted, uh, and in certain respects, um, exists in something of a state of tension with the new constituencies um, that uh, some of these uh, parties uh, have attracted. Finally, the question of the state. And there, there are two aspects of this uh, I want to explore. One, particularly the book that he wrote with his uh, frequent collaborator and lifelong friend Sam Gindin, The Making of Global Capitalism, this false opposition between states and markets, which has plagued the left for a couple of decades, uh, that just doesn't exist, right? The states shape markets in the way that uh, parties shape classes. Yes, precisely. That's one of the main themes of that 
book, which is a really fantastic book, The Making of Global Capitalism, and in a lot of um, their work in general, especially dating from from the 90s when that sort of thing was just rampant, not just in academic life, but in popular culture, journalism, commentary uh, as well. You know, it wasn't uncommon to hear claims from every point on the political spectrum that states were dead, big government's over, we've entered this brave new world ruled by the market now. But yeah, they had they always rejected that, you know, and as you said, they had the perspective, and I think they were right, that um, markets, corporations, economic actors, and capitalism they require states, a system of states, and above all, the American uh, state, which they call the American empire, to create the conditions that they need to operate, to superintend it, to regulate it, and where necessary, to intervene to make sure it runs uh, from their perspective smoothly. That could mean relatively low-key forms of pressure to uh, try to push friendly and allied states to adopt different kinds of policies when it comes to the welfare state, when it comes to the labor movement, what have you. It could mean doing military interventions against, uh, say, Iraq or or other countries that uh, have run afoul of uh, what it is you think they should be doing. So for them, yes, this this opposition between state and market that is so common just everywhere, not just on the left, uh, not just among conservatives, but uh, everywhere in both academic and popular culture should be rejected. These two kinds of uh, broad areas of life, you know, politics and economics are are very much interdependent on each other and have this broad division of labor that uh, are very much intertwined and which uh, together sustain this this system of global capitalism. And um, it just just doesn't hold water at all when you're really subjected to any kind of scrutiny. So for them, yes, the state is central to the operations of of capitalism, not just at the level of an individual country, but on a global scale as well. And of course, the American state really shaped this whole uh, global affair, at least (laughs) until recently, where it seems to be uh, withering to some degree. But uh, the the power of the American state to shape capitalism over the last uh, six or seven decades has been absolutely crucial. Exactly. And yeah, an important part of their sto- the story they tell uh, of the analysis they, they advance is that this story just doesn't begin, say, like in the 70s or 80s, the way that uh, many people will, will date it. This is a story that goes at least as far back as, as the 40s during the, um, the reconstruction of the global economy that took place after the end of World War II. So in their view, there are more continuities between the post-war period and um, what you could call the neoliberal period rather than discontinuities. You know, they, without going too far in that direction, without claiming that it's all the same, uh, I don't think that they would, they would say that. But I think that they, that they were right in highlighting the ways in which what becomes a, a mature global neoliberal capitalism you know, by the turn of the 20th century, how the seeds of that, the, the conditions for that, the institutions that really underpin that order were, were built many decades ago and much earlier than, than uh, many people realize. And then finally, our state, um, if we somehow could achieve a socialist government, which is very hard to imagine, but let's imagine it for a second, we wouldn't want to smash the state, nor would we want to just put our people into the same slots. We want a different kind of state, right? We need to transform it. Yeah, ideally, that's something that Leo returned to over and over again, both in his own solo work and in his collaborations with uh, with Sam Gindin and many others as well. In doing that, yeah, they were trying to tra- chart, uh, I, I hate using this phrase, but I can't really think of a better one, a third way, uh, if you will, that um, sought to avoid the pitfalls of both what became of social democracy uh, by the middle and later parts of the 20th century, and um, more orthodox forms of Leninism that they thought, and I agree with them, aren't quite compatible with the political and economic conditions that we have to grapple with in a country like uh, the U.S. Uh, in 2021 or Canada in 2021 or whatever the case may be. So yes, they, they were very wary both of thinking that you could just catapult or parachute people behind enemy lines, as it were, elect people to office and kind of just let them do their thing uh, and make change from, from the inside. That's part of what you have to do. But if that's all you do, then you're, you're not going to get very far, both uh, because of the resistance that you'll find by vested interests within the state and then also from private capitalist power uh, outside the state. At the same time, you can't do it totally on the outside either. You can't be completely external to it because you'll probably really remain quite marginal. It's just not a state that you could have really any hope of uh, confronting externally and, and, and bringing down through some kind of process similar to those that either were achieved or attempted 100 or more years ago. So yeah, for, for them, the challenge, 
and there's certainly no formulas here and uh, it's quite difficult, was to try to yeah chart chart something of a of a middle path, the third way, whatever you whatever whatever you'd like to call it, between both just putting your people in there and, and using the state as it is, or just trying to smash it and uh, stay outside of it be, before you smash it. Both of those paths, uh, I think, lead to to disappointment and failure for for different reasons. And yeah, in, in that sense, he was trying to build upon, develop, develop and extend a lot of the, the strategic and political thought of you know both his own mentor Ralph Miliband, uh, but also somebody like a Nikos Palantzis, uh, you know, the great uh, Greek French theorist who uh, wrote and thought along fairly similar lines as well in the seventies. So yeah, that that's the sort of tradition that he was trying to work in and develop. And I think that you could call it, and you know, this is what I like to call it, just democratic socialism, something that's distinct both from social democracy on one hand and uh, more orthodox Leninism on the other. Yeah, one of the things I admired most about Leo was that he was able to live in the real world and yet be uncompromisingly radical. It's very hard to keep that balance, but uh, he was a real model for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, he's somebody that in that sense was... Very inspirational to, to me, somebody that I've tried to, to the extent that it's possible, to try to, to emulate and uh, certainly very inspirational to, to everyone else uh, at Jacobin and then many of my fellow members of DSA and then just on the left in general. As we said at the beginning, a great person, not just as an intellectual and political figure, but just, just a marvelous human being as well. And uh, it's just a terrible loss and a heavy responsibility to, uh, to bear to carry his, uh, his legacy into the future. Well, let's go do socialism in his honor. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> that was Chris Maizano, a contributing editor at Jacobin, who wrote an excellent overview of the work of Leo Panitch for the magazine. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this Undone from the new album by Londa Hecht, a member of the band Muncie Girls, on her first solo outing. Till next week, bye. You said that you